This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we're welcoming you back to our Desiring the Kingdom series, and this week to 2 Kings chapter 4. Now, Sam, when I was doing this chapter for our study notes, this is you called this the avalanche of miracles. You know, there's like one <laughs> after another. Mm-hmm. And there's five miracles in this chapter, uh, which, by the way, neatly worked for me doing study notes because there's five days <laughs> in the devotional. Yeah. That was that was convenient. But as I was looking at them, I really got the sense that I, I labeled them creation, birth, resurrection, cleansing, and provision. And as I mm-hmm. looked at that, I mean, that's just the labels that I gave them. We'll talk through them. But I looked at that and I said, man, it's almost like God's showing us the arc of his great plan. Like yeah. he's, he's, he created the world. He sent his son into the world with a miraculous birth. He raised him from the dead. We're cleansed through his son. We've got provision by his son. So all these things really spoke to me as if God was kind of mm-hmm. painting that arc of all history. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it, it gives you a, a, a pretty amazing sampling of the character of God. And who he is and what he does for us. It's, I thought your division of it was pretty brilliant. And, and see, I, I'm not, I'm not the, you know, I'm not the Christ in the Old Testament guy that you guys are. You and Dr. Gage are really, really good at seeing all those pictures and spotting all the, look, this is three of these and three of those. (laughs) But with this, I felt like it was like so obvious that God Mm -hmm. was saying, look, we start here. And as we'll see, the, the birth of this woman's son that's coming up is totally miraculous. And then Mm -hmm. that miraculous son is raised from the dead. It's just tremendous. You know, I mean, it's just kind of right there for us. Yeah, and it, it it's hard to read them without thinking about Jesus. I yeah. mean, it kind of it draws your mind yeah. to him, the master of resurrection. So let's start with the first of the miracles. And this is the uh, – and this one actually kind of echoes something from Elijah's life. Um, when Elijah was at the widow of Zarephath, this is going to sound very similar to that. So Second um, Kings chapter 4, verse 1. It says, now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. So that, that was kind of common back then, right? If you were, mm-hmm. if you were in debt, they could literally come and make your children into like forced laborers to pay off your debt. Yeah. So today we would say, oh, just declare bankruptcy. Um, in the ancient world, there, there was no bankruptcy. Um, so <laughs> no way, no way around that. Yeah. You're, you're not getting out of it. So either your, your extended family pays your debts like Boaz does for Ruth, or you forfeit your property until Jubilee comes around. If you have a male head of your house to kind of receive your property back, um, that's when, you know, everybody receives their stuff back so that there's no generational poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, or in, the, in this case, your family is going to be sold into servitude or slavery to pay the debt. And if, if there's nothing to be done there, then you're thrown into a debtor's prison um, until you can arrange for payment. So you paid your debts one way or another. There was no forgiveness. And so in this case, they're coming to take her children to sell them off into servitude 
in order to pay the debts. And it's quite possible that there wasn't a lot of property in this case because it mm-hmm. says it was the wife of one of the sons of the prophets. So the the husband was one of those minor prophets that was – we talked about him as being mm-hmm. sort of Elisha's disciples. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably weren't people that owned a lot. Yeah. And we don't know, like, how long he had been dead. Did he leave his wife with all these debts or had right. she accrued them in her poverty? Uh, without a husband, we, we don't know. We're not given that picture. But this is, this too is an indictment of, of Israel at this time, you know, because in the law, one of the things that was required, like if you go to uh, Exodus 22, you know, that you're commanded to take care of the widows. Like the church was, Israel was commanded, the king of Israel was commanded to take care of the widows and not allow for this kind of stuff. And so, like, God listened to the heart of God. He says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry and my wrath will burn against you. Um, or in the instructions for the kings in Deuteronomy, it says, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial, who takes no bribe, and he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And so God is saying, you go out of your way to take care of the orphans and the widows. Um, and there were actually, like, if you look at the Old Testament, there's four groups that you'll see in the Old Testament that God is constantly saying, you give special attention and care of these people. And they're the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners. Yeah. And and those are because those are people who don't have the same defenses as ordinary citizens. You know, they don't have um, they're they're way more vulnerable. And in this case, I mean, you think about this case, and in this story, you have fatherless children, so that checks one of the boxes. You have a widow that checks another box. You have poor. Well, that checks a box. And when it says that the children are to be sold into sla- as slaves, you know, it doesn't say it plainly, but it hints that they might not have been natural-born Israelites because the law also forbid Israelite citizens to be sold as slaves. They were to, required to be servants, sold into kind of servitude until they paid off the debt, but you couldn't be sold as a as a slave. And so they may have been foreigners. And so in this story, it's checking all of these boxes where Israel should have been on heightened alert. We really have to take care of these people. And in this case, this woman and her sons are being exploited yeah. and their vulnerability. And so Elisha says to her, this is verse 2 now, uh, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil, which that takes us back to Zarephath, right? She had uh, mm-hmm. the widow at Zarephath with Elijah had oil and flour in that case. Um, in this case, she's got half as much. <laughs> All she's got is oil, you know? <laughs> um, and then this is a really interesting thing that uh, Elisha says. He says, then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. So um, that's kind of like we were seeing with the in the previous chapter with the mm-hmm. digging ditches. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the yep. Lord kind of wants you – know, I say kind of. The Lord sometimes wants his people to move out in faith before the miracle actually happens. I mean, it's easy to dig the ditches when the water's pouring down and you're thinking, we got to catch this. And it's easy mm-hmm. to grab the empty vessels when oil is overflowing and you've got more of it than you can deal with. But – these folks are being told to do something before they see the miracle. <laughs> and and it's it's God is setting this up to be kind of this 
where it would have really tested faith because when it says, you know, take this nothing in the house except a jar of oil, this is all she has, the the Hebrew word for that is asuk, which comes from another word that's suk, which means to anoint. And so this isn't like a jar of oil that's set aside for cooking that's big. It's a really, really tiny jar that's for anointing. So it's not even like cooking oil, you know, big jar. It's a tiny little thing that's for anointing oil. And so you got to imagine he's saying, hey, go get as many jars as you can, get big ones. And you're going to take this tiny little thing <laughs> and you're going to just fill them all up. And you look at it and you go, that, that doesn't work. Yeah. That can't happen. There's not a, there's not enough space in this little anointing <laughs> flask to fill up these jars. And, sure. and what what Elisha is saying is, don't limit God. Yeah. Go go get as many as you can. And then uh, verse four says, Elisha continues his instructions. He says, then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. Which again is an interesting thing because it's like okay, and the miracle is going to be done in your sight. You know, it's like, this isn't going to be something where God's going to do this up on the wall of the city. Um, you know, he's going to do this for you. You know, you're mm-hmm. going to see this provision. And if you tell everybody else later that we just kept pouring and pouring and pouring, you're going to sound a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't see you take that little pot of anointing oil and fill all these vessels. They just know that suddenly you've become the oil baron of the city. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're you're going to have so much of this. And this is where the rest of this this little passage goes. Is She has so much of it that it takes her out of poverty. Right. Um, from this tiny little anointing flask. She's now what you what you you know like the oil baron. Yes, <laughs> I love that. Suddenly this she's is, uh, you know suddenly she's opening filling stations. So, uh, and it says, and when one is full, set it aside. So she brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, "Bring me another vessel." And he said to her, "There is not another." Then the oil stopped flowing, which that's another great thing too, which is the oil flowed until there was no more need. Mm-hmm. It's like it was just it just kept going and going and going until all the vessels were full, and then. It stopped. You know, it's mm-hmm. like God gives you as much as he intends to give you. It's not like God's going to hook you up to an endless train necessarily, but he's going to provide all that you need, and then that's enough. Yeah, I wonder if at this point she was like, man, we should have gone bigger. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't find any other empty yeah. vessels, kids? Come on, you know? <laughs> so she came and she told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. So whether you believe that 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 small pot of oil was emptied out and kept miraculously refilling, or whether you believe that the oil was being miraculously formed in the mm-hmm. vessels it was being poured into, the one thing we cannot disagree with is that oil was being made out of nothing here. It's like mm-hmm. the Lord was making oil. For this woman, he yeah. was multiplying what she had. So, you know, you know, I, I, I realized I was taking a few liberties <laughs> when I said it was creation because it's not like God was creating the world anew, but He was making oil out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it totally points to this idea of what, what you know, theologians or whatever they call it, ex nihilo, which is out of nothing. It's it's the way that God creates. He doesn't need resources. He doesn't need aids or crutches. He just speaks and it exists. Yeah. And so he's showing this woman, you have a limitless supply. I can just keep making more by my will out of nothing from nowhere. 
Um, and it reminds you of Creator God. It reminds you of the story of Jesus when he's feeding the 5,000. Very much so because remember, this woman not only takes care of all of her needs and pays her debts, but she has some left over. And so in the story of feeding the 5,000, what does Jesus do? This kid comes with you know five loaves and a couple of fish, and Jesus says, feed the multitudes. <laughs> you know, right. And it's like, uh, this doesn't work that way. And he's like, yes, it does. And out of nowhere, out of nothing – he feeds all of the crowds till everybody's full, and it says that there's 12 baskets filled uh, that are you know perfectly fit for you know the disciples. But there's an abundance and then some, you know. So this this points your mind to Jesus, and it's like, wait a minute, Jesus did that, you know, God in the flesh mm-hmm. did that. This is this is the same God. Well, and in case you forget it. By at the end of the chapter, you're going to get hit with another miracle where he does even closer to that, mm-hmm. where there's provision specifically in the case of food and a multitude, you know, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, in fact, I, I, as I was looking at the chapter, I thought, well, you could, you could flip flop the ends. You know, it's like I, I picked creation and provision for the two because, but in both cases, the Lord is creating essentially food, oil mm-hmm. or food out of, out of nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I do think that that's the thing that, for me was so important about this is that she didn't have any resources. She's like, look, Mm -hmm. this is all I got. I got a little pot of oil. Only thing in the house that's worth anything. And there are times when we feel like God is stirring us to do something or to move. And we think what? We think, well, we would, Lord, except we lack this. Mm -hmm. And the point is that with God, it doesn't matter. When you see this lack of resources, the Lord doesn't need – like he makes the resources as they are needed. And that sounds like one of these – prosperity gospel platitudes, but I'm not going there and saying that mm-hmm. that by giving a dollar, you can compel God to give $100. I'm not telling you that. And it's not necessarily going to bring wealth to you. But I do think that the message of this miracle is do not doubt God because you don't see the resources. Mm-hmm. God can bring the resources. Yeah. And we've shared stories and previous podcasts of the ways that God has done that for us, mm-hmm. where we did not see how this was possibly going to work. And God absolutely met our need yeah, on his timetable and by his means, but he, he meets the need. It's, it's pretty awesome to see how sovereign he is. And in ways that we absolutely could not have predicted. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And one of the other things that, you, that I started noticing when we got to chapter four, I'd never seen this before. But with, you know, we talked about how Elijah's this great prophet. And then when Elisha comes along, he's asking for the double portion of the spirit to be the firstborn of the inheritances, the idea to, to carry on the legacy. And we compared that to Jesus and then the early church, you know, carrying it on and doing greater things. One of the things that's different that I noticed from Elijah to Elisha is Elijah is always hands on in the miracles. You know, he'll, he'll be the one who goes into the house and he's going to be there to multiply everything and he's going to go on Mount Carmel and be, you know, intimately involved in all the miracles. But when you get to Elisha, Elisha starts doing something that when I had the first thought, I thought, man, he seems kind of lazy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when like last chapter, God sends the miracle of the water when all the people are about to die. And what does Elisha do? He says, you all go dig the ditches. Yep. And then God, God's miracle comes to them as they're doing something. With the widow, what does he say? You go ask for jars and you go into the house and you do it. Like you see how God is moving right now through you. Later on in this story, he, when the woman's son is dead, what is he going to say? 
you go back to the house. And she's like, no, 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 I need you to come with me. And he's like, all right, I'll come. <laughs> you know? And at the end of the story, it's you do this. You know, it's so Elisha is showing that the Lord works through the faith, not just of the great prophet, but he moves through people of faith who are working by faith on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, it it kind of democratizes the the power of God to the people if they will but move by faith. I thought that was interesting, really, really fascinating. And I think it's also a sign of Elisha's humility, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. When, when we did the chapter where Elisha – where Elijah was taken up to heaven and Elisha received that mantle. Um, I think we talked a little bit about there about the fact that Elisha was, was a humble guy. You know, it's yeah. like he, it showed up when Elijah said, what can I do for you? And Elisha said, I need a double portion of your spirit. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, he wasn't saying that I want to be twice the prophet you were. He's saying, I need, I need twice the juice you had just to do what you did. Yeah, I need more help. Yeah, yeah. so I think that Elisha is a, is a humble guy, and like you mm-hmm. say, very much so. He wants to get out of the way and let the Lord work. And again, I do this every week, and I apologize, but spoiler alert, next week when we get to the subject of Naaman, another miracle involving Elisha, I mean, it is really driven home in that one because Naaman mm-hmm. loses his mind over the fact that Elisha's like, you just go get in the river. <laughs> you go do it. Yeah, yeah. he's like, what, what? You're not going to come out here and wave your hands and make some pronouncement? You know, he's like, he expected something. He expected dinner and a show, and he wasn't mm-hmm. getting it, you know? Um, yeah. Elisha very much wants to remain in the background whenever possible. Yeah. And I think that's really cool because if we do our jobs right many times in serving the Lord, Sam, we should be almost invisible. Yep. People should see the Lord. They should give the glory to the Lord. It's like it should be – if you're doing it right – it should be less of you, mm-hmm. more of him. Yep. And that's the one thing that Elisha brings is the word of the Lord. And then it's like, mm-hmm. okay, here's what God says. Now go do it. And, you know, that's in a sense, that's the role of, of a pastor modern day. Here's the word of the Lord. Go do it. You know, he'll, he'll be the one to provide the blessing. It's not, it's not going to be us, you know, but here's the word of the Lord. Yeah. Go do it. So then we come to the next miracle, which is Elisha and the Shunammite woman. Um, and this is in verse eight. And it says, one day Elisha went to, went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lives. Note that. Put a finger there. Remember, she's a wealthy woman who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, behold, now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there, and he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him, and and she said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But Hmm. the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. So uh, the first thing I, I noticed here was that this was a woman who 
felt like she was in really in need of nothing. So she was a wealthy woman. And when he said, would you like me to speak to the king or to the commander of the army? Is there something that I can, you know, I can, I can make life easier on you. She's like, I dwell among my own people. Basically her way of saying, I'm well taken care of, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's no, there's no need here. And yet when I looked at this, okay, she's a wealthy woman, which probably means her husband's wealthy. Mm -hmm. If she doesn't have a child, and her husband dies, and we're told that he's old, she loses everything, right? Absolutely. In the ancient world, that was cultural norms all over the world, including Israel. And so a woman only – she had no property rights. If a man died, the property went to the firstborn son. Um, and if she doesn't have a son, then it goes, in a sense, to the community, and they're supposed to take care of her. But she does not have property rights. So, so she's particularly vulnerable here. Yeah. And, and so what I was thinking was there's going to be a miraculous birth here. This woman is going to have a son. Miraculously, mm-hmm. her husband's old, past the point of, of natural conception. Think about Abraham and uh, Sarah. Mm-hmm. So the Lord has done this in the past, and he's doing it again now. But interestingly enough, in this case, the miracle is being done for somebody who, as I read this, I thought she didn't think she had a need. She, she thought she had no lack. Look, there's nothing I need. There's nothing you can do for me. And I'm, I think sometimes, you know, it's like, man, we get that way. If you come to me and say, well, hey, what can I pray for? Man, there's a dozen mm-hmm. things I need somebody to pray for at any given time. But well, what do we say? No, n- nothing really. It's like we, we, it's not that we don't recognize our need, but we subjugate it. We, we, we like, you know, it's, yeah, it's not that big a deal. And I think that she had to recognize if you had asked her, Hey, what was going to happen when your husband died? She had to know she was going to be in a rough situation, but her feeling, her general mode of operating was, I don't have any need. And yet the Lord saw her need and mm-hmm. provided for her greatest need, which is to have a son. Mm-hmm. And you get the sense when when he comes and says, "Hey, I'm going to do this," and she's like, "No, no, no, please, please don't even don't even talk about that." Like you do get the sense that this is something in her that is tremendously painful. Like when he when he promises, she's like, "No, no, no, please, please don't even go there." Like I can't handle the disappointment of that. And so I I think in some sense she's thinking like she's resigned herself that this isn't going to happen, that this is her lot, and it's too big of a thing to ask. And it's like she's she can't handle that being on the surface is the way that I see this to even where the mention of it, she's like, please, you know, don't make that promise. Yeah. It's obvious. I mean, the way she says it, you know, do not lie to your servant. I mean, Mm -hmm. she knew who she was talking to because just a few verses before that, she's like, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. So she knows she says, no, my Lord, oh my, oh man of God, do not lie to your servant. Well, if he's speaking for God, Mm -hmm. You're right. That was some pain to be, to, that was, that was very, a very emotional outburst. But you, I mean, what is that? It makes me think you, you mentioned Abraham, you know, when, when Sarah hears the promise that they're going to have a child, what does she do? You know, she laughs. That's <laughs> just impossible. I mean, she, it's all, it's, she scoffs at the idea. There's no chance. Like I've put that to bed. Like that is something that I don't even want to consider anymore because it's too painful. Um, and then eventually she laughs in joy when the Lord comes through. Um, and here I think you have the, that same heart. I think this woman is deeply grieved and doesn't mm-hmm. even want to risk disappointment there. Yeah. You also wonder whether she had been told many times in the past, like, okay, if you do this, you know, then, mm-hmm. you know, home remedies type things. Like, you don't know, and we don't know. This is another thing where we're not really told from the text. 
we don't know had she lost a bunch of children um was she was she unable to conceive what, what you know what was her frustration how many times had she tried how many times had she been disappointed and and then to have this come to her for the man of god say to her this is what's going to happen for you god is going to satisfy your deepest need and take care of your greatest pain at the same time there's a song that a band called Seventh Day Slumber. It's a Christian rock band. I know a lot of people probably don't know them, but they're I, I really like their their music, you know. And their writer is somebody that the guy that writes the songs, the lead singer for the band, has struggled for years with uh, depression, and so he writes a lot of songs that come from that basis. And they had a song called "Addicted to My Pain." which was the name of it. And the song was basically about how he judges himself the, the harshest, you know, like, and it's, it's a great, by the way, it's a great song. Mm-hmm. And it's about, you know, he's crying out, to, he's crying out to God to take away his pain because he realizes that he is addicted to it. It's like, he keeps inflicting this pain because in a way it's like, that's what seems real to him is the pain and I feel like in this case, this woman may have been in that same position. It's like the only thing that seemed real to her was the pain that she hung on to. And so for her to be told, you're going to have to let go of that pain, that's a huge step of faith right there. We we're talking about the step of faith that people have. He's like, I'm closed up. I'm hugged around my pain. I'm hanging on to my pain. I'm not going to let anything take it away from me because this is real and it makes me know that I'm alive. And then you have the man of God come to you and say, the first thing you got to do is get, is to let go of that pain, to open yourself up again and believe. Hmm. That's a step of faith. <laughs> yeah. Very much so. So there is a miraculous birth of the son here. And then we come next to the third miracle, which is going to be the miracle of resurrection. Hmm. So – It says in verse 18 now, when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. So among the reapers, meaning that people working like this is a wealthy guy. Basically, it's out there. He's employing these people to reap in his field. Mm -hmm. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, I love this, all is well. (laughs) Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So she's obviously, she knows her son is dead. He died on her lap. And when her husband says, you know, what's going on, basically, her answer is, all is well. Hmm. And she's going to repeat that later. You know, the crazy thing is that she's just placed her dead son in the bed where Elisha sleeps when he's visiting, closed the door, and now she's on her way. And it says that she's going to Mount Carmel. And what the fact that she put him in a bed, what we have to understand about the culture of those days and even even modern days – um, a Jewish person, when when there's a death, there is a race to get the person buried. Um, they're supposed to be buried within 24 hours, same day. You don't want it to go overnight if you can help it. Uh, and the ancient cultures, even more so. 
You know, you, you see like Jesus, get him down from the cross and buried before nightfall, before the Sabbath begins. There was always a rush to get the deceased person into a tomb as quickly as possible. And what does she do? She takes the dead son, puts him on Elisha's bed, closes the door, gets ready for a trip. And it says that she set out to go to the man of God, Elisha, at Mount Carmel. Now, this is no small trek. This is 30 miles from uh, Shunem to Mount Carmel. And, you know, I, I looked up on fitness websites, how fast <laughs> would you normally hike? I mean, it would have been a seven-hour, eight-hour trek, if you're booking it, to get to Mount Carmel, going there and coming back, which means what? It's not going to be before nightfall because the child doesn't die until noon, right? Right, right. And so if at that moment she set out, it's she's not even getting to Elisha until after dark. And it's in the early morning hours and, you know, it's going to be in the next morning by the time she gets back, if she comes straight back. And so what does that mean? It means so she's risking the shame of him not getting a proper Jewish burial. She's risking that with confidence that this isn't going to need a burial. Mm-hmm. Um, she is on her way to the man of God has put this kid in his bed, right? Which also, you know, death in the ancient world, like this was in the Levitical law, like you don't contact death. And when death touches something, it makes it unclean. And she's put this dead kid in Elisha's bed. And there's some significance to that. What she's saying is you gave me this kid. It was your promise. I asked you not to break my heart. And now this kid is dead. I'm putting this kid in your bed. There's some symbolism there. And she's on his way to confront him. I love this woman, like the boldness of mm-hmm. and the faith of this woman and the heartbreak. You know, every step that she's taken to get to Elisha, you've got to be thinking that she's just begging and pleading with God through all that heartbreak. And she wants Elisha to show up because, by the way, she knows that Elisha's master has raised a dead son. Mm-hmm. And her hope is entirely in that. Yeah. So continuing in verse 25, when the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered once again, all is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone. For she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Right then, Elisha knew what had happened. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take up my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Like no conversations, just go. Verse 30, then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him the child has not awakened. Um, Obviously, I mean, everybody, Gehazi had to know also that the child was dead when he went in there. Mm -hmm. It's like not breathing or whatever. But he said to him, the child is not awakened. It's like one of the things that's, <laughs> that as you're reading this, there's this expectation that this child is going to wake up. The wife is like, mm-hmm. all is well. If I get, you know, if I get the man of God back to my child, all is going to be fine. 
the Gehazi, you know, put the staff on him. Nothing happened. But he's like, the child is not awakened. It's like everybody, I feel like everybody here has this expectation that this child who was born miraculously is going to miraculously come back to life. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's fascinating to me that Elisha said, since Gehazi, you know, and the expectation is that there's going to be a resurrection. And this woman is like, I'm not leaving you. Mm. I, he can go. But her expectation is that the Lord's going to move through Elisha or that the ultimate accountability is going to be with Elisha. I don't sure. want to take my eyes off of you. I'm not leaving you. I want you to be in charge of this. And that's – it's just – it's so fascinating to me the the kind of relational dynamics and and the heartbreak that are going on here. Like she's she's calling him out, um, and is in bitter distress. And one of the things like this ties absolutely real close to a story involving Jesus. Um, if if you were to look at a map of Israel, this town Shunem is right on the slope of a hill called Moreh. And if you go to the other side of that hill, there's another little town that's right on the other side of that hill, and that town is called Nain. We only hear of Nain one time in the entire Bible, and it happens in Luke chapter 7. And I want to read this story. Listen to this story. So Jesus in this story has just healed the centurion's servant. And it says, soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain. Why is he going there? We have no idea. We've never heard of this town before. He just decides to pick up one morning and walk to a town called Nain from Capernaum, which, by the way, would have taken all day to walk there. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother. Hear that echo. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So they're coming out to bury this kid before nightfall. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. He came up and touched the bier and the bearer stood still, which is the bed that the dead body's on. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak to Jesus and he gave him to his mother. Um, Fear seized all of them and they glorified God. And what do they say? A great prophet has risen among us. This is Luke 7, um, starting in verse 11. Why do they assume a great prophet? Like, this is the sister city of Shunem. Mm. It's the dead son of this widow. And the thing that I love about this story is the tenderness of God. That morning, Jesus woke up and said to all of his disciples, we're going to go to a town we've never been to before. (laughs) You have no idea why we're going there, but we're going. And at the time that he sets out from Capernaum, I love this. This woman wakes up and finds her son dead. And she's in grief all day long. You can only imagine what kind of arguments and grief she's laying before the Lord. And as she can't come up with answers, what's he doing? He's sending an answer, yeah. He's walking toward her. Yeah. She doesn't know that. She can't imagine what the Lord is up to. But he walks all day long as she is in the middle of her grief, wondering what God's answer is going to be. And right as she is going out to bury her son, to say goodbye forever, Jesus jumps in front of this coffin and says, no. But I love the way that I take that practically is there's so many times where you wonder what God's up to. And I love this, that you don't know. He might be walking, you know. He's on his way to meet you. He's on his way to bring about some kind of resurrection in your life. But you, you don't know what he's up to. But he just might be walking from Capernaum to Nain for the sole reason 
of meeting this woman because he's heard her cries. Um, I love that. You know, and I hate to uh, bring something like Tolkien into this, but Tolkien wrote with a lot of Christian allegory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the Gandalf character in Tolkien had a lot of Christ-like attributes. Gandalf showed up in The Hobbit, actually, going back to The Hobbit, and Gandalf <laughs> says, a wizard is never late or early, but always re- arrives precisely when he means to. Uh, <laughs> and I think about that sometimes. It's like God is never late nor early. He always arrives precisely when he means to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some somewhere somebody's going to be saying, "I can't believe you dragged Gandalf into a podcast," but I did. I'm sorry. So that's, <laughs> that's a good line. That's it a is. Good line. So then we have Elisha coming into the house in verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands, as he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opens his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. There are a couple things here that I that I think are kind of unusual. I have questions about. I mean, it says that Elisha laid him, stretched himself out on the mm-hmm. child. Now, Elijah did the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah. That would say. I mean, this this happens with both of them, and it might have been where Elisha, you know, heard about this and thought, you know, I'll do what he says. But there's two takes on this that I've heard. Because um, when you read this, you're like, that's nah, kind of weird. Like, I it is <laughs> weird a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> Drew was talking about. You know this. This feels creepy. Yeah. Um, but there's there's two ways that I've heard this explained. One of them is that this is showing the incarnational nature of God. That this is, you know, deeply personal. That Elisha is relating to this dead person. Because remember, the the widow is going to put this dead kid in Elisha's bed, which if Elisha doesn't come through, would have defiled that bed. Sure. And so what does Elisha do? He comes and says, no, 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 you don't understand the power of God. I'm not afraid of this defiling death. I serve a God who overcomes death with life. And so I'm not just afraid of the bed. I'll put my mouth on the mouth, eyes on the eyes, hands on the hands. I'm getting up close and personal with death, and I'm going to show you that God's life cleanses death. Uh, through this power. And so it, I think that's probably the right interpretation. But it's like, you know, it's like when Jesus touches lepers in the New Testament, it would have been shocking because you, you're not supposed to do that. Um, but instead, his righteousness, his his cleanliness, his life surges into what's unclean. And rather than being defiled by it, it makes the defiled clean. Yeah, And that would have been shocking to see a prophet a very holy man laying contact, full contact with a dead corpse. Um, and God is saying, well, that doesn't defile me. I overcome death with the power of life. Um, and another one is in the ancient culture, if the people of that day would have heard about that, they believed in something called sympathetic magic. And so like the prophets of Baal and everybody else, you know, they, they act out what they want the gods to do. And so – Elisha laying on top of this dead body is trying to give his life to this body through a 
what they would have called or what we call now sympathetic magic that would have happened in the ancient world. I think that might be true. It might have been a rebuke of Baal um, worship. In fact, Shunem, the town Shunem, here's your worthless trivia for the day. Um, Baal's the father god of the Canaanite religion was a god called El, but he also had a nickname. Um, his secondary name was Father Shunem. And so when when Elisha shows up in this town of Shunem and raises a dead son, it's mocking the god El or Father Shunem because when Baal dies, El can do nothing but slash himself and grieve. He can't raise his his son, heir, Baal from the dead. And so there's a, there's a lot going on here, um, but it's showing you that God has the power to raise the dead mm-hmm. and to overcome defilement. It's, it's a strong message. I found myself also thinking back to the story of the creation with Adam. It's like he formed the man out of the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into mm-hmm. him. So when I see this thing about he lay upon the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, this idea that that breath carried life from God. Mm-hmm. You know, the breath of God brought life to Adam. The you know through the cool. through the man of God here, the breath is going to bring life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the spirit breathes. You know, it's like this idea of the spirit being described as wind. To me, it felt like as I'm reading that, I'm like, you know, that the transference of life and power from God is often described as breath or wind. Mm. Um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that. And in the creation narrative, all the days of creation, God God creates by the power of his word, right? Let there be light. Sure. And, you know, let there be an expanse between the waters or let the seas teem with fish. You know, he always it's by the power of his word. But man is different. That's the first time that God gets his hands dirty. He doesn't just say, man, exist. You know, he, he comes down and he scoops up dust and he forms us. He literally gets hands on. We're the only creature where God gets physical. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case here, you see life coming by Elisha, you know, getting, like you said, you know, breath to breath. Right. Um, face to face. It's, it's physical. It's, it's cool. Yeah, I think that reminds us of that. I think also that uh, I've always believed that there's never a detail in Scripture that's not important. So whenever Scripture gives us one of these, like, odd details, it always catches my eye. That's Mm -hmm. when I'm studying a passage. Just things stick out to me. Okay, the child sneezed seven times. Mm -hmm. Any idea what the seven times is all about? I mean, seven is the number of God, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a number of completion. Yeah, it's it's the number of days in a week, yeah. Um, I don't know why the sneezing seven times is – and I read one commentary that was talking about how this is gradual, like the kid warms up and then he sneezes seven times and then he opens his eyes. So it's like, you know, he doesn't just in an instant come to, but it's like, you know, there's there's some kind of convulsing or awakening. It's a I'm not sure what the significance is. I'm sure there is one. You know, I, if you know, like modern day sneezes are considered the reason why we say God bless. This is absurd. But the reason why we say God bless you after somebody sneezes is in the ancient world, they would believe that you were expelling the spirit. I don't know if they, whether they really believed that <laughs> because, you know, the wind, you know, right. that God breathes into you, you forcefully chew and it comes out of you and it's like, well, let's refill you. God bless you, um, you know, which is kind of silly. But here you see this kid sneezing seven times. And so if that if that folklore <laughs> existed uh, you know, 2,800 years ago, that maybe that was it. Maybe they associated that. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, really I mean, the other thing too, I thought was, you know, the number of completion or the, the mm-hmm. number of God that, so that by sneezing seven times, the, that the Lord was sending a signal going, okay, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. we're, we're, he's full. <laughs> we're good. Yeah. So the, the seven for sure, that's, that's the fullness number yeah. of God. Sneezing, I don't know why God chose sneezes. Why not blanks, blinks or, you know, convulsions or sneezing? I don't know why. All of these things, all of these miracles, the one thing that's that's true about them is that none of these things could be done by anybody other than God. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, you know, hey, we could we could water down the oil. We could make the oil go as far as possible. We can stretch the oil. You know, we can do the fertility treatments. We can do the medical interventions to try to prevent. We can sustain life medically, you know, dramatically and very far and but these things of, you know, creating something out of nothing, having life come from barrenness, uh, and life from death, those are things only God can do. And it continues as we continue going on. In each of these instances, this is describing something that there's no way to misunderstand this. The Lord did all of these things. There's a, a line by Keller that I love. Cause when we come to miracles, we want, like you're talking about, we want to explain, well, maybe this happened or maybe that happened, but, the point of a miracle is God breaking through, showing us what's supposed to be. Because, you know, like you look at all the miracles that are going on, people dehydrating out in the wilderness. You look, you know, somebody who's who's barren and can't have kids or uh, somebody who's widowed and all these things that the fallen world imposes on us mm-hmm. um, that we go, no, you know, a miracle comes and it shows God's power of what's to come. Yeah. It's a preview of that. And I love Keller's quote on this that I, uh, David Richardson used in this week's sermon, uh, this past week's. He says, Christ's miracles were not the suspension of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. They were a reminder of what, of what once was prior to the fall and a preview of what will eventually be a universal reality once again, a world of peace and justice without death disease or conflict. And right. so when you see these miracles breaking through, it's a preview of what God is ultimately going to do all over the globe. Right. So verse 38, we come to the, the last two miracles here, quick succession, kind of connected in a way. Uh, verse 38, it says, And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there, when there was famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. As I'm reading that, I'm thinking, well, that's helpful. <laughs> let's, let's eat this. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, my goodness. You know, it's like, all right, they're – you know, these guys that do these survival videos or the woodcraft where they go out and they live off the land and things like that. I, you know, unless I was like living off the land just outside of a McDonald's, I would starve to death because I'm going to look at a plant or an animal or any. I'm going to go, I don't know if I can eat that. <laughs> I don't know if I can drink that. I don't know what I can do with that, you know. Um, so all I can look at, I, I have some empathy for this guy, but I also think that I probably would have looked at that gourd and went, ah, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I, I watch these survival shows where like one of them I'm watching right now is alone. 
And they throw these people in these places and they go around going, oh, yeah, that's this kind of mushroom or that's that kind of barnacle. That's totally edible. And I'm like you, man. I <laughs> I would not have made it no. as a caveman world. Like, it's just not happening. Unless there was some place I could get a quarter pounder or something, there's just no way I'm going to survive in the wilderness. So. Hey, we got a lot of reserves. We could we could last off that for a while. If but. we had water, we could last for a while. That is true. That is true. So one of the things that was in a commentary, just for, for nerds out there that are curious, there's a lot of belief that this is something called wild cucumber. And it grows around the Dead Sea, but after a while, if it dries out, it induces colic and can be fatal. And so a lot of people think that's probably it since it's described as a gourd. One of the commentaries that I have said that it might have been something called the colosynth, C-O-L-O-C-Y. Mm-hmm. Same thing. N-T-H. Okay. And apparently they have a – there is a, a a name for them today. They call them the – colloquially over there, they call them the apples of Sodom. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't want to eat an apple of Sodom. I don't. Want, <laughs> I, I don't want anything of Sodom. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let me eat some of this, and God's going to send meteors down on my head. <laughs> so, verse forty, we find out the outcome, and they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, "O man of God, there is death in the pot!" And they could not eat it. He said, "Then bring flour," and he threw it into the pot and said. Pour some out for the men that they may eat, and there was no harm in the pot. Now, obviously, I don't think that the that the flour was what you know took care. That mm-hmm. was a, I think a symbolic thing. It's like a you know I think that what Elisha wanted them to see was that he did something. Basically, mm-hmm. here I'm throwing this flour in the pot to show you that I've done something here. But it's not like the flour neutralized the poison. Mm-hmm. And and that I mean you can you can. Pull that and say, okay, the flower, maybe that makes the bread of life and that stretches to Jesus. Maybe that might be intended, but I think you're right. He's putting something in the pot and the message is in the ancient world, once something was defiled, it's like if, if, if I put, (laughs) if I put arsenic or cyanide in a cup of tea and I say, oh, I can take care of that. Like you're never going to drink it because in our mind, we understand you can't take something that's poisonous and polluted and make it clean. You just can't. It's it's done. It's got cyanide on it. I'm never drinking it no matter what you do to it. And what this is showing is the power of God alone can come into something that's entirely polluted and make it pure. Mm-hmm. We can't do that. Like no matter how much – we look at what's flour going to do? It's still got poison in it. Flour's not going to do anything. This is stupid. Well, that's the point. We can't clean it. We, we look at that and go, well, that's dumb. The whole point of it is only the Lord can take his life, his surging power of life and resurrection and cleansing and make something that's poisonous and toxic pure. Hint, hint. That's what he does with you. You know, like, how do you, how do you clean me? I'm defiled. I've got all the shame that I'm carrying around. I got all the poison in my pot. Only the Lord can come and and the gospel injected into my life makes me pure that's the power of god here yeah and you know you mentioned the idea of maybe some kind of connection to the bread of life i'm not going to say who did it. it's that crazy guy that writes our study notes 
but he might have suggested. <laughs> I saw it. I saw it. And I, I agree with it. I definitely I think, think it, there's I mean, a nod I think there. It could, I think it could be part of it is what I'm totally. saying. You know, I said perhaps it's because flour is what you use to make bread. And it is the bread of life than Jesus who removes the poison of sin from believers. So I'd like, yeah. you know, maybe it was something like that. You know, there's there's something about this, and it, we'll see this later on in Elisha's ministry when when he when they have to raise the axe head. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, we're always doing spoilers. It's okay. <laughs> but what does he have to do? He has to cut down a tree and throw it into the waters, and then this crazy miracle happens where the axe head floats, or you go. You know, to the the story of Moses when he's, you know, fresh out of the Exodus and they come to bitter waters and Moses cuts down a tree and throws it into the waters and it makes the bitter water sweet. And here, what happens? You know, flour is thrown into the pot. Well, what's flour? It's something living that was cut down, crushed, winnowed, all that stuff mm-hmm. and thrown into the pot. In other words, life and cleansing and all those stories that you see come because something – of life, and you got to think life in the middle of a famine, right? Yeah. The only thing that's living, it seems like, yeah. is cut down and thrown into the pot of judgment, and it makes it edible so that everyone else can live. Mm. That's the gospel, yeah. You know, and and every one of those senses, it, it's Jesus. He is the one who was cut down and thrown into the poison, in a sense. Why? So that we can feast and find life. So then we come to the final miracle in verse forty-two. Um, a man came from, and I, this name is going to get me here, but it was like Baal or Baal Shalisha. Shalisha. <laughs> Shalisha. Kind of fun to say. Baal Shalisha. Baal Shalisha. So, uh, you knew David practiced that before his sermon. Yes, I do know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it says that he's bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, mm-hmm. and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them. And they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Um, first thing I was going to mention is that the first fruits were, uh, this was something, this was like a provision, I guess, that was being made for the Levitical priests and the, pro, you know, mm-hmm. um, in other words, these were things that were essentially being brought to Elisha. They would have been like his provisions. Mm-hmm. So Elisha was sharing his food, his provisions, what the Lord was giving to him to live on, he was going to share that with the sons of the prophets. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first thing that occurred to me, is that it was it would have been Elisha perfectly within his rights to say, first fruits, thanks, put them over there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, one of the things that you're talking, you talked about how the first fruits were set aside for the priest. The Levites did not inherit any land in the promised land. Um, they were scattered throughout all the tribes. And so the reason why you had to give first fruits to take care of the priests is they didn't have their own land. Um, they had little sanctuary cities, but they didn't have their own land to produce harvests. And so you would normally give it to them. But Israel is so awful at this point that it's like, well, there are no priests. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Who do we give it to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're all corrupt. And so he's like, well, I mean, I trust Elisha. He's doing the Lord's work. And so instead of giving it to the priest, he brings it to Elisha, which is unbelievable act of faith because you remember just a few verses earlier, we find out there's a severe famine in the land. So this gift of first fruits and this abundance of food in the middle of a country that's in the grips of a famine is impressive faith. Um, 
impressive faith. And here you have Elisha, who also is in the middle of this famine, who doesn't say, oh, good, I can hoard and store up and be safe through this famine. Uh, and by the way, it's interesting that it's a seven-year famine. What does that make you think of? Um, that goes back to Joseph, right? Sure. And, and what, what is Joseph's heart? Let's, let's give it away. Let's, let's take it. Have God give us an abundance for what? So that we can share and give life to the people. That's the ethic of the Bible. It's not the, – the true man of God never hoards for his own safety. Mm. He takes the abundance of God's blessing for the sake of everyone else. With Elisha being entitled to keep this food, um, maybe think about Jesus, right? It's like Jesus was entitled to everything, and yet he mm-hmm. gave everything away. Yep. Um, you know, I, the, the flour in the pot got me thinking about it, and then this fact that, that Elisha, as the man of God, was giving away the things that were rightfully his, mm-hmm. you know, that's what Jesus did for us. You know, Jesus, he was, you know, he is that bread of life. He's the thing that, that takes out the poison of sin. And, mm-hmm. and he had everything and gave it all away to us. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when we did a study on miracles on Wednesday nights, one of the things that I really just love about God that shows how good he is, one of the things that shows how good he is, is, you know, when, when he was being tempted in the, the wilderness in Matthew 4, and he's going through the three temptations, he's gone 40 days without food, is experiencing painful, real hunger. And Satan comes to him and says, you're miraculous. Tell these stones to become bread, eat something. And he says, no. But then he comes to a crowd that's hungry, and he says, I'm going to multiply bread for them. I, You know, so... The act of creating bread's not wrong, but he will not take advantage. He doesn't. He doesn't selfishly exploit his miracle working unless it's for the benefit of others. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the same thing with the woman at the well. She's like, "I've got a water, you know, that you don't know about. You'll never thirst again." If and he's talking, you know, about spiritual water, but he's like, "You'll never thirst again. Come to me." And then on the cross, what is he crying out? "I thirst." And so it's like. Jesus endures the pains of hunger, physically, spiritually, so that we can be satisfied. That's always the heart of God. It is sacrificial to its core. It's humble beyond belief. This this God who is infinite and all of his attributes humbles himself and is sacrificial in the way that he loves. To He becomes toxic so that we can become pure. He becomes hungry and thirsty so that we can be utterly satisfied. And that is his character. You see it in these stories. That is the character of God. And whenever we're in those seasons where we see a famine coming or a drought coming, we have to remember the character of God. Like, that's who he is. Mm. And he's going to take care of us. He's going to provide on his timing and by his means, which may not make sense to us sometimes. But that's his character. He's just that good. Yeah. Well, that is a good word, and I think it's the word that we're going to end on in our study of Second Kings chapter 4. We hope that uh, you have enjoyed your time with us, that it's been profitable for you. Uh, if you would like to correspond with us, if something that we've talked about today has uh, prompted some questions or you'd like to make a comment or uh, just let us know maybe about some miracle of provision in your life that the Lord has done. We love hearing from you. 
Our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast by going to our website at riovistachurch.com forward slash out of water. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or on Spotify. Uh, and you can also get it in the Rio Vista Church smartphone app. So we're everywhere. Out of Water is available all over. We are, we'll be back next week with Second Kings chapter 5 and the story of Naaman, which is a fascinating one. And we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.